what could I say uh, as my parting statement to the church? Now, I know it won't be my parting statement because you're probably going to hear from me again and again, probably more than you want to, because we're not dying. Uh, we're not actually going anywhere right now. Um, we're going to be involved at Valley, but I won't have to come to any meetings. Uh, when a problem occurs, it'll be Pastor Tim's, not mine. I can shrug at it. Philip will say, well, how are we going to do this? I'll say, I don't know, you have to ask Tim. Um, but as I, I count our 20 years here in the journey that we have been on, uh, <clears throat> I am so excited about Valley. I'm so excited about this ministry. I, I think that we don't begin to realize that this is the, the actually the beginning of this ministry and the impact it's going to have in this community. God has brought us to this place where we can finally do those things that God has designed for us. It, it gets really embarrassing for me when I am at a pastor's conference and they ask, um, well, how's Valley doing? I hate that question. I hate to answer the question because in answering the question, it is discouraging for most of the pastors that hear it because God is doing a wonderful work in this ministry. And, and uh, you know, even though you can brag on God, it discourages those who are in the ministry who do not see the same kinds of things that we see here at Valley. So both Philip and I have a hard time answering the question without seeming to be... Um, arrogant, proud, and boastful, but we certainly are not, for we know that God is at work uh, in this ministry. So as I thought about what, um, what I'd like to uh, leave you with until I harass you again, um, I thought of um, uh, a couple of things that Paul said to the church at Philippi. Would you open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1? Philippians chapter 1. It's in the New Testament. If you have a pastor's Bible, it's on page 991. But only pastors can have pastor's Bibles. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> Let me give you a little history here. Um, Paul had uh, been on a missionary journey with Barnabas, and uh, they didn't really have a falling out. I, I believe that when you look at Acts chapter 15, you realize that they had come to a conclusion. Paul had come to a conclusion that Mark was not yet ready for ministry. And uh, Barnabas um, was related to Mark. They were, he was his cousin. And so he had a strong, um, a strong investment in Mark. And so Barnabas wanted Mark to go with him, and Paul didn't. And so Paul and Silas went out on the next missionary journey. Part way through the journey, as they are in what is present-day Turkey, um, Paul had a vision, a man from Macedonia pleading with him to come to Macedonia to present the Word of God. And uh, it, was so, um, it was so real to him that they immediately left and they went to Macedonia, ended up here in Philippi. They were here for several days and untypical to Paul, where at most times he would go into the local synagogue, that's what he did in Thessalonica, when he came into town, the first place he would go would be the synagogue because that's where he would find worshipers of the Judeo-Christian God, and he would present to them the gospel, and many would be saved. And so he always kind of started in the synagogue. Or uh, if he went into a city that was prominently Gentile, like Athens, he would go to a local place where they would debate and talk with one another. And so he ended up 
in Mars Hill. But this day, when they came to Philippi, they, they did something that he's not done before. He, he went down to the riverside, hoping to find a place of prayer. And he found a place, a place of prayer, and he began to share the gospel, the good news, with the people who were there. The, the text uh, tells us in uh, the book of Acts, chapter 16, that Lydia was one of those people. And while she was listening to the message, it says God opened her heart and she accepted the message of Jesus Christ, became a believer. In fact, she and her whole family uh, accepted the gospel and became believers. And they pleaded with Paul to come and stay with them. And so Paul and Silas, and by now Timothy has joined them, um, they all stayed with uh, Lydia, the seller of purple, a professional woman uh, in their house. The, several days later, Paul is going back down to the place of prayer, and there's a young girl um, who's demon-possessed who is following him, shouting out, these men are servants of the Most High God. They are telling you how you can be saved. And it irritates Paul. So he turns around and he casts the demon out. And when he does that, he irritates these two guys who have been using her to make money. And so they drag Paul and Silas into the town square before the magistrates, and they, they lie about their impact. These are Jews, they said, who have come upon this Roman colony, and they have come here to teach us foreign ways. And so the magistrates have them beaten and then thrown into jail. Now, we don't know whether this young girl becomes a member of the church. Traditionally, we count her as a member of the church. But while in jail, Paul and Silas, and you, if you grew up in the church, you've heard all of these stories. They sang hymns. They prayed. They proclaimed the gospel. So all the other prisoners heard. And about midnight, a great earthquake happened. And it was so great that it, it shook loose all of their bonds. Well, the Philippian jailer was um, told that he, by uh, the cost of his life, had to guard these prisoners. And all the prisoners remained there, even though all of the doors had opened and all of their chains had, had fallen off. And so when he came in, he drew his sword, ready to kill himself, and Paul says, no, no, we're all here. And so the Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And so... Um, Paul led uh, the Philippian jailer and ultimately his whole family to the Lord, baptized them. The jailer took them home and fed them and brought them back. And, and kind of the rest of the story is the next morning the magistrates say to the jailer, let, him, let these people go. And Paul says, whoa, wait a minute, we're Roman citizens. You beat us per publicly without a trial in front of everyone, and now you want to just dismiss it. Well, they didn't know that they were Roman citizens. So the magistrates had to come down, humble themselves before Paul and Silas, and plead their mercy, and then they took them and, and out of town and, and let them go. Now, that, that's the story of the beginning of the Church of Philippi, not unlike Valley. When Philip came uh, to this area, he came with a strong sense of God's leading. Uh, he couldn't be dissuaded by anybody. He came here and began to proclaim the gospel, and we are the product of that work. Well, 11 years later, after Paul started this church at Philippi, he finds himself in prison again. Uh, he finds himself in bonds. It's interesting. I, I wonder what we would do in prison. Um, would we continue to serve or would we just languish in our misery? 
Paul saw it as an opportunity to write many letters, and so he wrote the prison epistles, what we call the prison epistles, and Philippians is one of those, 11 years later, after he had begun this church. And notice what he says in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons. There's a, a great example there. The, you see the leadership combined with all of the saints in Christ Jesus. He says, grace and peace to you from our God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the completion, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how, long for you, how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I find two things in this passage. I find a promise in verse 6 and then a prayer in verses 9 through 11. Let's look at the promise. Paul says this, being confident of this, that he, God the Father, who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, there's a lot of uh, debate about um, who is the you here. The you here is plural. He's talking to the church, and lest we forget, we are the church. You can never divorce the church from people. You see, if, if, uh, if an earthquake took this building and property tomorrow, we would figure out how to get together because the church known as Valley Bible Church is us. It's not the building. When we, when we built the building, what, one of the things we did, when, if you notice when you come in through the doors, we purposely did not call it the sanctuary because somehow that makes this room holy. This is the auditorium. The holy part is us. The church is us. And so Paul is writing to the church but we have to remember that he's also writing to the people of the church. I think the greater emphasis here is he's writing to a church filled with people and he wants to give them a, an encouraging word that they will continue on until Christ comes. Now that will either be, depending on your theology, at the rapture or the second coming. But when Christ comes, he'll find this church active and involved. Though it won't be the same group of believers, we know that now, 2,000 years later, but, but, but Christ is in the business because he has all authority of making his church function and making his church stay. In fact, uh, many times when churches close their doors, Pastor Phil has said this for years, the Lord closes them. We give Satan a lot of credit for closing the church, but Christ will close the church when it ceases to be the church that Christ wants it to be. And you see that in the letters of the Church of Revelation. Well, when you look at um, this uh, phrase, uh, Paul says, I have known you so long. You, you were first to help me 
when no other church helped me, you helped me. And I see in you the love and growth that comes from the gospel. I am confident of this, that he who began a work in you will bring it to completion. Now, I have a couple of caveats here. Um, the, the first caveat is this. Um, many of us are guilty of what I call Christian fatalism. And it, and it goes this way. God's in charge. God's in charge of my life. God's in charge of the church. God will do it. And so we just kind of pray a lot and don't do anything. And, and that, Paul is not suggesting that we, as members of the church, stop doing anything that God's just going to automatically, ipso facto, bring us to success because we are that church. In fact, if you just turn over in another chapter, chapter 2, verse 12, notice what he says to the same church. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, chapter 2, verse 12, not only in my presence but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So we're in a divine cooperative. What, what does he mean, work out your salvation? You know, we uh, talk at Valley, uh, both Pastor Phil and I said under men who talked about the tenses of our salvation, the, the past tense, before the foundation of the earth, Christ put into plan, into place a plan that would save us. And when we accept Christ as our Savior, our sins are dealt with from a plan that began in the past. Um, there is a future time in which we will be uh, spared from the presence of sin. We will not be in the presence of sin. We'll be in the presence of God. So there's a future sense to our salvation. We're waiting to be saved. Paul's talking about our, our present tense of salvation. There is a, 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 a function that we have to be involved in, and it, it's the will of God. Paul said this, if, if you want to know God's will, commit your body, stop being pressed into the world's mold, and by the renewing of your mind, be transformed, okay, so that you can know what God's will is. So we're, um, we're involved in this process, and it's too easy for us as Christians to just let God do the, all the work. God doesn't do much of the work. I've said this for years. I don't care how long I, I would sit in an office, in my office, here at the church, for example, and pray that God would put me in the car um, God will not put me in the car because he's given me the ability to get out of the office and get in the car. And, but there are some times in our life what we do is just turn it all over to God and then we're angry with God that he doesn't do the things that, that he says he would do. And so we ought not to understand that when we look at this passage. God is not saying, just step aside and let me do everything. He's going to use us. It's also true that we ought not to exclude God from the program. There are many, many churches that get involved in what I call the, the, uh, the democratization of the church or the secularization of the church in which God doesn't seem to be working fast enough and hard enough, and so we kind of want to take over. It's the church of methodology. And you know, you can always get a crowd if you do the right things, but you can't always get God's people, and it's not a church until it's God's people. And so you have to be careful that you don't apply the standards of the of the world to the church and all of a sudden begin to exclude God. There's a subtle way that we do that in churches that um, go through the gifting issue and, and, and struggle with some of the gifts. And, and if, you, if, if you're from this background, you'll understand what I'm saying. I grew up in a, in a church that believed that uh, tongues are not for today, that the, 
the gift of, of healing is not for today, that many of those gifts uh, ceased when the Word of God was complete. But in that same church, we would be amazed if God did anything. Because in throwing out those gifts, we throw out a miraculous God. Do you, do you know that God still does miraculous things? Do, do you know that God still heals? Uh, God doesn't need a healer anymore. God can heal in miraculous ways. We've had people in this church that have been anointed with oil and prayed over by the elders, and God has healed them. Uh, I tell the funny story about the guy in Oregon that we prayed for for a year and a half, had cancer, and when he got healed, half of my Sunday school class was trying to figure out if they misdiagnosed the, the cancer. Why? Because we wouldn't believe that God could actually still heal. So when we look at this passage, we want to be clear about one thing. God is actively involved in this ministry. And this promise is that he will bring to completion what he's begun in us, but we need to be participants. If we become spectators, it will not happen. God has a plan for this area, and if he does not use us, he will use someone. And yet we still remain the largest church in this area for a purpose, not because of our size, but because God is using us to change lives. And we need to be confident, as Paul was confident, of this promise that he who began a good work at Valley will bring it to completion. So he assumes that uh, we'll be uh, cooperative with that. Paul can justify his whole feeling about this church in verses uh, 7 through 8 because of his experience with them. He has seen them as an authentic church. You know, it's uh, amazing. I, most, most pastors want to pastor the perfect church, um, and, and the perfect church doesn't exist because they're the pastor. Uh, what we want to uh, pastor is an effective church. And what we want to look for as we look at this uh, purpose of God is for God's evidence in it. Howard Hendricks used to ask a question that was a haunting question to those of us who pastor. What has happened in your ministry that can only be explained by God? Isn't that a great question? What has happened in your ministry? What has happened in your life that can only be explained by God? Because God invades our lives and he does expect to make a difference. So Paul has seen this church and he's seen what they've been able to do. He's seen their testimony. He's been the recipient of their gifts. And so he says, in light of the promise that I've given you, let me give you a prayer. It's a profound prayer. He says this in verse 9. My prayer is this, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Well, anybody who's spent any time with me knows that I am a fanatic on this subject of love. Um, I'm a fanatic for several reasons. First of all, uh, the Bible tells us over and over again that without love, our ministry is worthless. I'm convinced that we can become a people, uh, a mean-spirited people, by knowing a lot of the Bible and not loving. It, it's amazing that you, you can know a lot and not be loving, but it's hard to be loving without knowing. There's a, there's a great balance there that knowing becomes the foundation of our loving, but loving is the basis upon which we earn the right to touch lives with the gospel and to touch each other's lives. 
And so I think it's profound that as Paul has given them this great purpose, he now gives them a prayer about loving each other more and more each day. Uh, this word uh, love, as you've heard my testimony many times, uh, really impacted me because I grew up in an in a environment in which we were right about everything. In fact, I, I do want to write a book someday, um, and the title will be, Help Me, I'm a Recovering Pharisee. <laughs> the problem I have is my writing partner doesn't think that anyone would read it because he said the Pharisees certainly wouldn't read it, and it's not helpful to those who have gone already through that. So I still think I'm going to write it just kind of a catharsis for me. Um, I know what it's like to be a Pharisee. I know what it's like to be unloving. I, I, tell, the, I tell the story about the, the doctor, and bear with me, I'll tell it again, because it was one of those events that really changed my life. Two events. Um, one one um, evening I was coming out of my office. I'd been called to the emergency room. I went around the corner and I bumped into this guy. And, and this guy had, uh, this was 1969, um, I know some of you weren't even here in 1969. And he had little glasses, hair, hair, Birkenstocks, which I didn't even know what Birkenstocks were. All I knew is he didn't have socks on. And he had Levi's that were inappropriate. We all wore suit, tie, right? And he had a big sweatshirt that said J.S. Bach on it. And I almost knocked him over. And I said, who are you? And he said, I'm the ER doctor on for tonight. And I said, you're kidding. <laughs> now, I was in seminary learning a lot about love. <laughs> and the hospital was very good to me. They said, you know what, we, uh, we know you're in graduate school. We, if there are no patients to, to work on, feel free to use your office to study. You don't have to hide about it. We're happy to help you out in that way. And so one night, uh, I had my, in my office all my Bibles open, my Hebrew, my Greek. It's like the Holy of Holies. There was kind of an aura. You know. And uh, in walks this doctor. And he says, um, you, don't, you don't like me, do you? I said, what was your first clue? He said, why don't you like me? I said, have you looked in the mirror? He said, what's, uh, what's wrong with my appearance? I said, if I came in with a heart attack and looked up and saw you working on me, I'd die. <laughs> Is that not good Pharisee language? <laughs> he said, you know, um, he said, I just did two stints in Vietnam on the battlefront. He said, I'm really good at trauma medicine. Uh, I'm in medicine not because I want to make a name for myself or I want to make money. I just want to help people. He said, if we don't work together, it's not going to work out. You've got to cut me some slack here. And then he stuck his finger in my Bible. I thought, get your finger out of my Bible. He said, you're a seminary student, aren't you? I said, right. He said, you know, you guys learn a lot about love, but I don't see a lot of it in your life. Then he left. I was mad the rest of the evening. I went home to the woman that God gave me to agree with me. <laughs> and I told her about this story, and she said, you know, you should listen to him really carefully. I hate it when God gangs up on you <laughs> with your wife. I began to pray about my attitude. I began to watch him, and he was a phenomenal human being. He was a phenomenal doctor. 
we became pretty good friends over a period of time. And I, I realized that I cannot continue to live the Christian life in an unloving, uncaring way. You follow what I'm saying? And that is our great temptation as we learn more and more about a holy God, a great God. We miss his love. We miss his compassion for us and his great desire that we learn to love one another. So Paul says here, this is my prayer that your love would abound more and more for each other. This is a a phenomenal topic. You can't exhaust it. You've heard me. I've done series on it. If you've been in a Bible study with me, we've done ad nauseum verse after verse, because I'm still exploring it for my own, my own life. The word that he uses here is, is a love of sacrifice. It affects almost area, every area of our life. Uh, I, in, in friendships, if you love this way, you become non-possessive in your caring. You know what I mean? You don't own a friendship. You don't own people. You, you become non-possessive. That's one of the hardest things we have to do as human beings. If you love people this way, you're able to put them before you. You're able to put yourself aside. Um, you're able to do a, a number of things. And so he says that when you begin to love each other this way, it's infectious. And that God always honors this kind of love. I, I want to explore four prerequisites that we have to have to have this kind of love. Because this is the kind of love that God has for us. For God so loved the world. But God committed his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the word that's used here. For this love was shed into our hearts when we became believers, and we ought to be able to express it completely with one another. Now, this is not a a loose kind of love that uh, lets people do anything they want to do. That's not love. If uh, If you truly love someone, then you desire what's best for them. What's best for them may be painful. If you've ever raised a teenager, you understand that when you try to do something that is best for the teen, they're probably not going to be happy campers. But why are you doing that? You're doing it because you truly love them. And and so when we look at these four prerequisites, the first one we are are clear about is obedience. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. I want to look at just some verses here just so that you can see that I'm not making it up. 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. Peter, at the end of his life, writing out of great wisdom... Uh, is writing to God's elect, strangers in the world. And in chapter 1, verse 22, he says this, profound statement. Now that you have purified yourselves, does your Bible say that? Yourselves? Something you have to do. Now that you have purified yourselves, how? By obeying the truth. So that, and let me reinterpret this, so that you have a great friendship or a great brotherly love with those around you. For the word that he uses here, the the first word for a sincere love for your brothers is really that love that's not the love we're talking about. It's the phila'o love. It's the love of reciprocation. It's the love of friendship. He says the first step in being good friends is to purify yourselves by obeying the word of God. That sets you up to have good friendships. Now you're ready for the next step. Love one another deeply from the heart. That's our word, love. So the prerequisite to love people sacrificially is to get your life in order with respect to the Word of God. And when you do that, you're ready to make a contribution in the lives of the others. So the first prerequisite is to be obedient. 
The, the second uh, prerequisite is to grow up, to, to grow up. This is what Pastor Phil was talking about last week when he talked about being filled with the Spirit, being controlled by the Spirit. Uh, um, Marty Trammell and I wrote a book called Spiritual Fitness. That's a theme of our, our book. Uh, God's intended role and intended goal for our lives is that we grow up, that we be spiritually mature. No, notice how the spiritually mature believer is described in Galatians chapter 5. Um, they are able to, to exhibit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You cannot love without the power of God working through you. You cannot love without the power of God working through you. We had a speaker at the men's retreat. Um, his name, uh, Albert Tate, from um, Lake Avenue, Pasadena. He told a story about his cousins, and I thought it was a, a really insightful story. His, um, his uncle had uh, seven children, four boys, three girls. And his oldest cousin, the, one of the boys, was the first African-American to integrate the, the schools in Jackson, Mississippi. And when that happened, uh, people would drive by their house and throw bricks in the front window with notes on them, just hateful things. Throw Molotov cocktails in. They had to rebuild the living room a couple of times because it was burnt. And uh, one um, early evening, uh, four white young men pulled up in the car, threw a brick through the front window, and then their car stalled because they'd run out of gas. Well, the four boys knew what they wanted to do. They wanted to teach these four white guys in a car a lesson about propriety and politeness and courtesy in a culture that's changing. But Dad said, no, you guys sit in here in the living room. And he went around to the shed, got a gas can, filled it up, went out, filled their car up, and told them to have a great evening. And went back into the house to four angry sons. And he used that as an example of how God's grace can sometimes make us angry. See, when we're driven to love people, it's not the easiest thing in the world. And when we're asked to love people, we have to make the sacrifice. Sometimes it goes against our normal urges. And you can't do that without the power of the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit filling you, on a constant basis, then we're, there is no hope. There's no hope for valley if the Holy Spirit isn't preeminent in our lives. So the, the second um, prerequisite is to grow up. And we actively need to be involved in that process. The, the third uh, prerequisite is to give permission. To give permission. In uh, John chapter 13, in the last evening uh, of the Lord's life, he gets the disciples together in the upper room. And the text says his desire was to show them the full extent of his love. And so to do that, what he did was took his outer garment off, put an a, um, apron around his waist, and he began washing their feet. It's in interesting how um, loving people is a lot simpler than we make it. We, we want to make it profound. It's as simple as washing someone's feet. It's as simple as doing a good deed, is providing a meal, uh, helping someone out when they need help. And Jesus was trying to teach them several lessons, one of which was the simplicity of loving people. The second lesson was that it takes, um, it takes stooping 
It takes a willingness to get on your knees and wash feet. But I think the biggest lesson here we miss, and we miss it with Peter. When Christ comes to Peter, Peter says, no, 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 you can wash all their feet, but not mine. Christ said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. Then Peter says, well, then bathe my, bathe my whole body because he doesn't want to be not identified with Christ, and then Christ washes his feet. What's the lesson there? The lesson there is that most of us are Peter. Most of us are Peter. We're very good at giving. We're not very good at taking. Okay? You know what? We're not going to make it without each other. We are not going to make it without each other. And what happens in the church today, especially the American church that is raised on the mythology that we are independent, self-made people, and we really don't need each other, what happens is the enemy drives wedges between us, and our pride prohibits us from asking for help when we need it. In fact, I contend this, until you have needed help and received it, you've not earned the right to give it. Because you'll give it differently when your feet have been washed. You follow what I'm saying? And I, and I discovered when I, we first came to this church, we were just worn out. And the elders got us aside and said, look, here's some money. We want you to go get a hotel room on the coast and just enjoy the weekend. We don't want, we don't want to see your face again until next week. And it was so hard to admit that we actually needed help. Do you know what? We all need help. But we're so reluctant because of our pride, because of a whole variety of things, maybe the way we were raised, to say, help. Huh? And, and so uh, Peter becomes our example. You have to give the people around you permission to help you. And that literally is a conversation. I, I think you sit down with the people around you and you say, look, I'm really hard to help. I'm, you know, kind of a self-made person. I give you permission to ask at any point in time and to help me at any point of time. We were, uh, the four of us were in a Bible study in my home, and um, when the guys left one uh, day, the, uh, Dwayne Andrews noticed that my tires were bald on my car. And so he, he said, and I had just done this lesson on washing feet. And uh, so um, he said, your tires are bald. I said, well, I've only got a one-mile commute to the church, so I'm okay. No, no, but he says, you need new tires. You're illegal riding on those tires. So I said, well, it's, it's not a problem. And so about um, three hours later, the doorbell rings, and he's there with four tires. And, and I said, no, no, I really don't need this. He says, so you're not letting me wash your feet, Right. Huh? You see, the, it, it is a problem unless you give permission to people to help you. you they're not going to help you, and then, you're, then you'll resent the fact that they didn't figure out that you needed help. Where were you? Well, if you'd have let us know that you needed help. And I'm just telling you, help in a variety of areas. Help in your marriage. Help in parenting. We cannot make it as isolated people. We need to be together on this. And so we need to say, help. It's not wrong to be in help, in need. It's not wrong to say I need help. And so the, the, the third prerequisite is permission. We've got, we've got to give permission. And once someone helps us, it'll fundamentally change the way we help others. We'll help in a way that will not strip their dignity or remove their, their uh, natural pride about who they are. We'll give in a way that is humble 
and uh, we'll give it in a way that it may be tough for them, but, but they'll understand that we truly love them. And I'm telling you, when people give to you and help you, uh, it is the proof of their love. That's what Paul is experiencing here. No church helped him but this church. And he had the experience that they had helped him. And, and then the last uh, area that is so critical as a prerequisite to us is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We need to make it measurable. This is very convicting, so I'm going to go very quick here. Um, uh, you know, I've talked about this uh, list of qualities before. Um, when I discovered this uh, list, I put this list on my refrigerator door, and it stayed there as long as I was willing to work on the list. And when I got tired of working on the list, I would take the list off the refrigerator door. Unbeknownst to me, my family had Xeroxed it, and, and so it would appear back on the refrigerator door. It took me a while to figure out what was going on. Didn't I just take that list down? Um, so they loved me working on the list. They, they loved me working. Notice 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong and a clanging, clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, now he becomes very practical. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, does not boast. It's not proud. It is not rude. It, I, this is a poor translation. It's, uh, the New American Standard says it's not unbecoming. It's talking about treating other people in intimate ways that would reveal you don't love them. Um, it is uh, not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. This is the list of measurement for us. And it's not a, it's not a good list. Um, let me just show you the way I used it. Love is patient. Who are the people in your life that you have a hard time being patient with? God has designed those people to be your test and your grow-up mechanism. I listed them. I had three or four of them. Luana said the list was longer. <laughs> but three or four was ample. I left all my family off because certainly they didn't think I was impatient. And I actually began to try to be more patient with these people. I, I caught myself. Um, um, I'm, I'm sometimes impatient with people who don't get it the first time. I'm in the sciences. I'm in medicine. And we have a meeting, and, and I had a couple of people that um, they were really airheads they were really, really intelligent. They spoke several languages, but you had to tell them something 19 times before they got it. I'd never figured out how they got through college. And I would be so impatient. And I learned I could actually get through the 19th time without gritting my teeth and being angry. And all of a sudden, I realized that patience was up to me. It wasn't up to them to walk on eggshells. It was up to me. How about kindness? Kindness telling a doctor that he's so ugly that he would kill a, 
cardiac patient is not very kind. You know, sometimes we who know the Bible can use the Bible brutally to tell the truth, to be kind, uh, to be kind with our enemies, to be kind with people we disagree with. I, I hate this time of the year where we're coming up to another election because I'm just looking for a little civility. Huh? I, I want to vote, vote for somebody based upon their ability to do the job that they say they're going to do not based upon whether I like them or don't like them or whether I agree with their, everything they're doing in life or what, what, all that stuff that's out there. And that seems to be the only stuff that they want us to look at. Um, kindness. I'm looking for it. Uh, it does not envy. What happens when your neighbors drive home that great, big, wonderful, brand new motorhome or car or... Huh? You love your neighbor, but you'd feel a lot better if you had the same vehicle. It'd be easier to love them. Love doesn't boast. It's not proud. It's amazing what we can boast and be proud about. Um, I didn't think I had any problems in this area until my wife reminded me that when I drove our Porsche, I was different. <laughs> and I've told you that story, that... Um, I was so convicted by that conversation, and the next day our medical director came into my office and told me he had to buy a Ferrari for a tax write-off. And I said, Ted, nobody needs a Ferrari for a tax write-off. Why would you spend $170,000 to take off $4,000? I said, what you need is transportation. What you want is a Ferrari. I went home and told Luana that, and she said, why are we driving a Porsche? I, true story, next day took it down to the Honda dealer and said, I'll buy uh, that Honda if you sell this car. It might have been a mistake now because I have the wisdom and the maturity to drive a Porsche. But. <laughs> when people look at you, what do they see that you really are proud about? Is it the Lord's influence in your life or is it something you've accomplished? Take the list. The list will make a difference in your life as you begin to work on those things. Some of us are cynics, and, and the last part of it really hits us then. Always trust, always hopes. You know, if you, uh, if you are a cynic and everything is negative with you, then you uh, are suspicious about everything, and if you're suspicious about everything in that area, you're not loving. Because love says the first approach to anything is a hopeful optimism. A desire to, to see the truth here. That doesn't mean you're naive and gullible. It means that you give people the opportunity. That they, don't, they don't always start um, at a disadvantage. You're not always assuming that there's a hidden motive here. And yes, you'll be taken advantage of, but that's okay. Because God can overcome any of those things. And, and then he says, last, love never fails. Are, can you be dependent upon? Are you dependable? When you say, I'm going to be there at 10 o'clock, you're there at 10 o'clock? See, um, I, I know you love me if you're able to put these qualities into play in our relationship. And so the fourth prerequisite is we need to make these things measurable. This church needs to be more loving. It's not that it's not loving. It's not that it's... It's failing at this. It's just that Paul is saying to us, we need to do this more and more 
and more. Why? Because people who walk through that door live in a calloused, uncaring world that doesn't love them. And our loving one another will make all the difference in the world. Now notice the benefits of being a loving people. The, the first benefit is that we'll be able to put to the, 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 the test, or be able to discern what's best. What's best, I think, for the church. Isn't it interesting? This is not a business model here. He's not saying that we should weigh the finances and do the best thing financially. He's saying that on the basis of love and our care for one another and our desire to minister to one another, that care and that concern will lead us to the best decisions. And the hardest decisions in life are between better and best, not between right and wrong. And so he says a loving people can put to the test. I, I love the, the phrase. In the Greek language, it has this concept. You take a rock, you go up to Yuba, up in the Feather River area, and you mine some rock that you, you know has some gold in it. You think has gold, but you're not sure how much. You take it to an assay office, and the assay office puts the rock through a series of tests, and they tell you two things. Is there, in fact, gold there? And if there is gold, how much? That's the word that we have here. The word tells us that if we're loving one another the way we need to love one another, that we'll be able to go through the process of making decisions through a discernment process with knowledge and discernment, and we'll come out with best for the church. How we love one another. You know, sometimes we've done things at Valley that didn't make financial sense. I, I remember when John Surkar showed up, he, he wanted to do a Bible college. And I remember telling Luanna uh, that morning, I am really not interested in supporting a Bible, Bible college in, in Bangladesh. And then Pastor Phil had John come up and he gave a five-minute testimony about the Bible college. On the way home, I was so emburdened. My heart was just filled with compassion for that project. And, and I said to Luanna, I said, we've got to do something. We have just got to do something. I get home, the phone rings. It's Philip. He says, don't we have enough money just to give him the whole amount? He wanted 25000 I said, we really do. I hung up. Pastor Dave called. He said, don't we have the money? To... So we, we wrote him a check. And, and we didn't tell him. We didn't tell him a thing. This is Henri on our part, maybe not very loving. Um, we didn't tell him, so we made him go through his whole spiel that night about the Bible college, and then when it was done, we said, well, four o'clock this afternoon, we wrote a check for you for $25,000. Do you know what? Within three weeks, we had that 25000 back. It's not about money. You can't make God your God money. You make God your God. And God has all the resources to do the right thing. And, and so he says, you'll be able to find out what's best. You will remain pure. You see, when I love you, I'm not going to defraud you. Paul was right when he said in Romans 13 that love is the fulfillment of the law. Why? Because if I love you, I'm not going to steal from you. I'm going to do what's right for you. And then last, he says that we will experience the fruit of righteousness, and this is an interesting phrase, that comes through Jesus Christ. That little phrase should, should drive your memory to John chapter 15 when Jesus told the disciples that I am the vine, Apart from me, you can do nothing. But plugged into me, I will make you fruitful. You see, fruitfulness in the church is all based upon the head of the church, Jesus Christ. Well, Valley has a, a rich history. We have 
uh, I think, when I think of the church at Philippi, I think of, of Valley. We have a, a variety of people who have come to Valley through some remarkable experiences. I, I've, I've, I've wanted and I will continue to nag the issue us to do life stories more frequently because when we hear your testimony, we're reminded of the, the miraculous nature of the saving grace of God in the gospel. We have some phenomenal testimonies in this, in this congregation. And, and I believe that if we remain the loving people that God wants us to be, the people that God wants us to be in terms of engaged in this ministry and with each other, that, that this is just the beginning. Uh, I think we'll be complaining in a decade about having not enough space, about not enough room. We're already complaining about that with our youth ministries. They're already, um, they're already in need of a youth center. We, we already have growth in areas that we just can't explain apart from God's miraculous work in our midst. So when I'm asked, what is the future of Valley? Even though there may be a, a change in leadership, I just tell you, you know what? God's not changed. God loves this church. He loves its people. And I'm more excited today than I've ever been about the future of Valley as long as we will listen to his promise and follow his prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the uh, promise that Paul delivers that you will uh, bring to completion the work that you began in us. And we thank you for the reminder that we need to be a people of prayer, a people of love. And through Paul's prayer, Father, we pray that we'll apply that to our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.